Here, turn to Psalms chapter number 73. Psalms chapter number 73. Last week we started this study through the Psalms of Asaph and we learned a little bit about who Asaph was. He, he was the, the, the leader of worship in the temple. In fact, he was so dedicated to leading worship uh, for God's people that, that, that his generation of worshipers spanned uh, the length of 500 years. And so there's generations of Asas that were devoted not just to Sunday worship, but to a life of worship. And now we're going to begin to study the songs, the prayer songs that, that this worship leader wrote. And it begins here in Psalm 73. I'm titling this message tonight, Worship and Perspective. I think it's going to be very clear as we study this text, and certainly by the end of the message tonight, it's going to be very clear that these two things go hand in hand. The way you worship and the way you see life are, are very closely connected. And we're going to see that through Asaph's first song that's recorded here in Psalms chapter 73. Now I need to tell you up front that, that Asaph's strategy in pinning this psalm is very, very unique. Here's what he does. He begins his song with his conclusion. So his introduction is his conclusion. Here's what he's going to say in essence. He's going to say, okay, I, I've been through a terrible crisis of faith. And I'm going to recount it for you in lyric. I'm, I'm going to write this prayer song, uh, just accounting for you that the struggle that I've been in, this crisis of faith that I found myself in. But first, let me tell you how it ends up. Let me give you the outcome. Then I'll tell you the story of my trauma. And look at his conclusion that he began with in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. That's his conclusion. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But, but I want you to realize why he wrote this song this way. Why did he start with the conclusion and not just start with the bad stuff and then get to the good stuff? Why did he start with the outcome first? Well, I want you to imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine, it might be a reality for some of you, that you're a parent of a teenage girl. I'll pray for you if that's your reality. She comes to you and she asks, Mom, Dad, can I borrow the car? And you ask why. What do you have planned, honey? And she says, an evening with friends. And so after a moment of reflection, you hand her the keys. You're a generous parent. But now it's two hours past her curfew. She hasn't been answering her cell phone. So, so frantic thoughts are flooding your mind. And then suddenly the door flies open. In, she's, in she walks and she's clearly shaken. She's trembling. She throws herself into the chair opposite of you and she exhales. She says, Mom and Dad, I got a story to tell you. But first... Let me say this, the car's fine. I'm fine. No one else is hurt and you won't be getting a call from the police. See, as a parent, though you don't know yet the whole story, her words give you the confidence to rethink the past several hours from a perspective your frantic emotions denied just moments ago. Are you with me? Okay, so clearly not all the news that she's going to tell you will be welcome. But knowing the outcome first offers reprieve necessary to hear your daughter out. That is precisely the strategy of Asaph when he wrote Psalms 73. He sits down. He exhales. 
And he says, I've got a story to tell you. But first, let me assure you that I still believe God is good. Let me assure you, everything is fine for those that honor God. He wants to tell us that because he wants us to listen to his song, not in a, in a sense of suspense the entire time. The crisis is going to become so real in his song that he needs to know everything turns out great. You just need to know that, that it was kind of a bumpy road getting there. So the Lord's good. We get that. Are you with me tonight? His conclusion is the Lord is good. Now he says this, buckle up and let me tell you the story of how I arrived at this conclusion. It ain't pretty. Pardon my English or lack thereof. Through his song, we learn two things about worship and perspective. Here's the first. Your perspective is challenged by the prosperity of the wicked. That's what we're going to learn in, in the first 16 verses of this song. And here's what we're going to do. My verses are going to be on the screen. You can follow along in your, your, your uh, Bible or you can look on the screen. I'm going, to, I'm going to be flowing through these quickly, explaining them quickly. And we're leading really to, to, to a, an overall big point at the end that I want us to get. But we're going to study every verse. Look at verse number two. But as for me, Asaph says, this is where the bad news begins. My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. In other words, he's saying this. I almost lost my faith. I almost resigned from my temple responsibilities. I almost walked away from church. I almost quit on God altogether. Now, how could a, a temple worship leader, a man of his caliber, get to that point? Verse 3 tells us. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He got to this point, this crisis of faith, because of his perspective. You understand, church, that, that what you see with your eye has a way of affecting the perception of your heart. And Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked, the foolish people. He lost the right perspective and he admittedly grew envious. So Asaph admits that, that while he was serving God, but slipping into poverty, the wicked who had no interest in God seemed to be firmly standing in their prosperity. He didn't like this. And he goes on to get more specific in verse 4. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. What does he mean? He's saying they live as they want, but they're still healthy. They don't do healthy things, but they still have a perfect bill of health. Not only this, but it, they seem to enjoy a trouble-free life. Look at verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, he said. Neither are they plagued like other men. You know how we would say that today? They don't drive cars that die in the middle of a busy intersection. They don't lose their jobs. The wicked, they're not good people, but their homes never go into foreclosure. Their water heaters don't need replacing just after the washer needed replacing, which came right after the drains backed up sewage in the basement, which came right after the air conditioning went on the fritz. He's honestly admitting that it seems that as though the, the wicked and the foolish in this world live life on, on a hovercraft 12 inches above all the troubles of the common person. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore pride compasseth him about as a chain. Violence covereth him as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. What is he saying? They're morally bankrupt. They're violent and they're proud about it. Yet they still have everything their heart wants. Asaph calls them fat. In a good way. They have a fat wallet. They have a fat bank account. They got a lot of stuff. Verses 8 and 9. 
They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. In other words, these people are bullies. They're bullies with their words. They're arrogant and sarcastic and, and hateful towards those who are oppressed and not as fortunate as them. They even mock God and get away with it. Asaph says it's like they walk away with this laminated uh, a lifetime get out of jail free card. The universal law of sowing and reaping doesn't seem to apply to them. Verse 10. Therefore, now he starts talking about himself, his people. He's talking about himself. I return hither. And waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. In other words, Asaph came back to God after considering the prosperity of the wicked and it brought him to tears. He was so perplexed, so messed up about this that he cried a full cup's worth of tears. And then he thought to himself, look in verse 11, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, those are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in Riches, he's saying this, does God not see this? Does he not know what I seem to know? Or is it that God doesn't care? The ungodly are rich and getting richer. The ungodly are healthy and getting healthier. The ungodly are popular and getting more popular. And he comes to this conclusion in verse 13. Barely, I've cleansed my heart in vain. I've washed my hands in innocency for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. Here's the conclusion that his wart perspective brought him to. You ready? He said this in essence, it doesn't pay to honor God. I've been hoodwinked. I've been deceived. I've been tricked by God himself. Time out for a second in our study question. Have you ever been there? Has your perspective ever been such that when you look at the ungodly and their prosperity and compare it to your life situation and you happen to be somewhat godly you think to yourself does it really pay to serve God anyway because it seems like the only ones getting paid are the wicked it's at this point that I think brother Mike Asaph pauses I think he probably sits down and lays his pen on the side I think he puts his face into his hands and he thinks for a while. I do this when I'm writing sermons sometimes. What am I going to say next? I think he, he stops writing for a second. Here's what I think he thinks to himself based on the verses I'm about to read next. I think he thinks this. You know what? Something about my perspective doesn't feel right. As good as it feels to get this off my chest, even if it's just private meditation, me, my pen, and my scroll, something's not right. Look at verse 15. Here's why I say that. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. Here's what he's saying. I feel this reality of injustice in the deepest fibers of my being, but I can't bring myself to go there. If I started spouting off all this nonsense just because I felt in the moment like it was a reality, Asaph admits I'd do more harm to myself and others for generations. And given his role as a temple leader, he's exactly right. Had he disclosed impulsively the true feelings of his heart to those around him, he probably would have damaged their confidence in God and skewed their perspective as well. Boy, we can take a lesson from that. You know where that left Asaph? Wrestling silently with his struggle. He said, I can't tell people. I'm a temple 
worship leader. People look up to me. If I said what I feel in my heart out loud, I'm going to hurt people's confidence in God. So now he has to just wrestle alone. Question, have you ever been there in your walk with God? The internal struggle, the the skewed perspective where you're doubting some things you never thought you would doubt, yet you know these thoughts aren't right. You know you shouldn't share them out loud so as to hurt others, so you're left with secret inner thoughts, unexpressed questions, muted anger, maybe a silent sense of injustice. You almost feel like you're going to burst. But yet at the same time, something tells you that despite what seems to be overwhelming evidence in your heart and mind, and despite what seems to be an unjust reality in your life, there is still something not quite right about your conclusions. You're struggling to wrap your head around it. In fact, you've got a headache. That's where Asaph was. I think a literal headache, he says in verse 16. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. It's hurting my brain. It's like an unsolvable Rubik's Cube. You get it almost done and you just can't get it, so you throw it on the ground. It's like an unbeatable stage in a video game. You've tried over and over and you keep failing, so you throw your controller across the room. It's like a geometry problem that you can't solve, and so you just rip the entire paper. Every geometry problem was unsolvable for me. Asaph would roll around in bed for hours wrestling with this. It was driving him crazy in a very painful way. And I have found that sometimes, oh, don't miss this. In our walk with God, we get to those points where we're wrestling so deeply with a skewed perspective that we struggle to even rest well. We hurt. Listen to this next statement. We're at a place where our perspective has convinced our emotions of a reality that our spiritual heart won't let us believe. A couple people got that. I'm going to say it again for this side of the room. We're at a place where our perspective has convinced our emotions of a reality that our spiritual heart won't let us believe. In other words, we know it's not true, but we really feel like it is. And we can't shake the feeling. That, my friend, is a miserable place to be. Painful. But watch, we can take comfort in this one thing, that we're not alone. One of God's choicest servants, Asaph, the temple worship leader, found himself in this place. Here's the key. Asaph didn't stay in that place. And neither should we. He found a place to go where he could realign his perspective. And you know where that place was? Worship. I heard some of you say, church, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But it's worship. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, then, I understood their end. He said, I got it figured out. I had my aha moment, the the light bulb turned on it. It it, it made me remember a story I read about a a German high school student who solved, check this out, a 300-year-old math problem. 300-year-old math problem, which had first been proposed by Sir Isaac Newton. The Newton couldn't even solve it. 
For 300 years, for 30 decades, the brightest minds on the planets played with this conundrum and couldn't make heads or tails of it. But then suddenly one German high school student saw it. What? That's the same thing that happened here. This conundrum, this problem. Asaph was wrestling with keep him up at night. He saw it. And where did it happen? He said in the sanctuary of God. By the sanctuary of God, Asaph meant the temple in Jerusalem. That's where they gathered to worship God. Most often is where the Ark of the Covenant was to, to experience the presence of God. That's where the priest was to make confession and bring offerings and sacrifices and atonement for their sin. That's where they heard the word. It's, it's where they sang. It's where they prayed. But I want you to get this church. It wasn't so much about the place he went to worship. It was about the person he sought in worship. Get this. Church is, is so important. But for us to interpret this as church is the only place you can come to realign perspective would be faulty. We're not in the Old Testament anymore. We don't need a priest to make confession for us. We don't need a, a sacred box called the Ark of the Covenant in order to experience the presence of God. Oh, we love the church. Let's just admit together out loud corporately that there's something special about church. There's something maximized and, and intensified about the presence of God when you worship and sing and pray and fellowship with God's people, right? Can't deny that. Church is where the presence of God is on a, on a very supernatural level. But you are the temple of God. Amen. New Testament believer, you don't need a priest. You don't even need an Asaph. Literally, you can stop at any moment, fall on your knees and be in the presence of God in prayer. You can be driving down your car, listening to a worship song and enter into the presence of God through singing. You don't have to be in this place. So I would by no means say that exclusively the church is the only place where your perspective can be realigned. I'm talking about it's when you place yourself in the presence of God through worship. That's when the circumstances of life begin to find their appropriate place. And that's the second truth. Your perspective is changed by worship in God's presence. Watch, his perspective was challenged by the prosperity of the wicked. Why are they doing good? And I'm not, yet I'm the one behaving better than they are. And then when he got himself in God's presence, his perspective changed. Now we're going to study the rest of the song, and it shows us how this happened. And really, it's two main things that that Asaph's realigned perspective enabled him to understand. First, the end of verse 17 says, I understood their end. You see that? Whose end? The wicked's end. I understood where they end up. Well, well, where do they end up? Verse 18 through 20. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they, this is the wicked, they're brought into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Don't miss what Asaph is doing in this lyric. You see, in verse 2, when he started, he says, I'm slipping. I'm slipping. My faith is slipping. But with a realigned perspective, it's now the feet of the ungodly that are slipping. 
He came to this conclusion. The triumph of the wicked is only apparent success. Their security, their prosperity. Hey, it's an illusion. It's not that the ungodly don't prosper for a time, but their prosperity will come to an end the moment they enter into eternity if they don't know Jesus. Their prosperity is temporary. They're actually the ones that are slipping into eternal destruction, not the godly. That's how his perspective changed about about the wicked. Now, I want to make this clear. It's not that us, us godly people who maybe don't make a lot of money get to justify our, our life or, or somehow make ourselves feel better because the ungodly people that are rich, well, they're going to hell one day. So I'm going to sleep better at night even if I don't get a good paycheck because they might get a good paycheck now but they're going to hell. Why don't you go tell them about Jesus? So they don't have to. Asaph isn't rejoicing that, 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 that the wicked are going to go to hell. He, his realigned perspective is teaching him something about the fact that it really does pay to honor God. It just pays in a different way. And the wicked will have their payday. And, and thankfully, Asaph came to this conclusion, in eternity, I'll have mine too. But it'll be under the likes of this phrase, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Not the torment of hell. But I think there's one more thing, and I actually think it's his main emphasis. And he not only discerned the end of the wicked, but he discerned something for himself, and it was the joys of worship. Look at verse 21 and 22. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. Thus my heart was grieved, he said. And I was pricked in my reins. Why? I was foolish and ignorant. I was as a beast or an animal before thee. Watch here, church. The clear implication is that now, after having worshipped in God's presence, Asaph is no longer ignorant like an animal. You know, animals love moving throughout the world on the basis of instinct, not understanding, not discernment, not wisdom, instinct. But it's in worship that our insight and our understanding of God is restored. He goes on and said, worship just doesn't afford me the joy of understanding from God, but it also affords the joy of fellowship with God. This is an amazing truth in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Look up here. Asaph is saying that, that, that despite my doubts, despite my, my near fall from faith, I'm still with thee. Watch, not because Asaph did something spectacular to keep God with him, but because God did something spectacular in never letting go of Asaph. Asaph was blaming God for being distant and uncaring and unjust. All the while, God was right there holding him up by the right hand. If I was God, I would have let him go. Dude's getting on my nerves. Quit complaining. Adios. Thank God I'm not God. The whole time Asaph was slipping in his skewed perspective. God was the one reaching down and keeping him from falling altogether. And by the way, he does that for you too. During the times in your life where you're angry and you're bitter and you're all messed up mentally, and I'm speaking to me too, during those times, God never lets go of you. You can point your finger at him. You can fail to talk to him for months or years. You can walk away from the church. You can fail to put him first in your life. And all the while, if you're his child, he is holding you up. He will never let you go, even if you want to force yourself out of his hand. He won't let it happen. 
No man can pluck you out of the Father's hand. Worship affords us the joy of being satisfied, or, or rather the joy of being guided by God. Look at verse 24. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward receive me in a glory. It's amazing, church, that, that, that when Asaph stopped complaining and he started listening carefully to God in worship and in prayer, he found the light that he needed. Watch this. That's what worshipful prayer does in our life. It gives us the clarity we need to take the next step. Now, now the light of God's guidance doesn't always shine very far down the path. But I do believe that, that, that he'll, if we get into his presence, we'll get enough light for the next step. And that's how God's guidance works. We don't always get like a, an at-large map for our life. But he does promise to give, us, give us enough light for the very next step. That's why he says it's the steps of a good man that he orders. Not the leaps. God will guide you by the day, not the week, not the month, not the year. And worship is what allows us to see the next step, to follow him the next day. Verse 25 and verse 26. Whom have I in heaven? We sing a song with this verse in it. Who am I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion Forever worship affords us the joy of being satisfied by God. This is inheritance talk. Asaph is saying that, that after he went into the presence of God and he worshiped, he figured out, oh, don't miss this, that he's been miscalculating who is really rich. All along, he's been discouraged because the wicked are rich. But he went, when he truly got right with God and made God his portion, he figured out real quick that he was the rich one. And isn't that true when you are right with God, when, you, when you're truly walking with God, when, you, when you're daily worshiping God in his presence and where that's, that, that's where it needs to be. Don't you feel full? You feel satisfied? You feel rich? It's Jesus said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I mean, have you ever just felt overwhelmed with how satisfied you feel in the Lord? It's as though you felt rich in a moment. Maybe you weren't rich with money. Maybe you were, but the things that satisfied you in that moment were things that you have in your relationship with God and all his many blessings. You thought about your salvation. You thought about your church. You thought about your godly friends. You thought about your family. You thought about the journey God's brought you on and the destination he's bringing you to. And by the end of thinking all these things, you've kind of felt like you were pushing yourself back from the dinner table after eating your favorite meal only to go to your favorite spot on the couch for a good nap. Man, you just felt full. You felt satisfied. Have you ever been there? It might have just been like a 30-second spell, but, but you were in the presence of God, and He realigned your perspective, and life wasn't perfect. But in that moment, you were overwhelmed because God was so good to you. And you never needed another thing. If He stopped blessing you today, in that moment, your perspective was so pure, it was so rightly aligned with God's Word, that you were satisfied. You were full. That's what worship in God's presence will afford you. And ultimately, I think Asaph ends with the heart that every true worshiper 
should have. Look at verse 27, 28. We'll wrap it up. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But, he ends where he began, it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. He said it's good to draw near to God in worship. Is it easy? No way. But is it good? Absolutely. What is he saying? I think he's saying that God's presence is worth everything that the discipline of worship demands. Did you hear me? God's presence is worth everything the discipline of worship demands. And that's how he concludes. God is so good to those that draw near to him with a pure heart. Now get this in the big picture. Asaph's perspective before worshiping God in God's presence was this. It pays more to be ungodly than it does to be godly. Here's what he said. I try to honor God and put him first and I slip into poverty. While the ungodly around me couldn't care less about God, yet they are living in prosperity and he was all messed up. But his perspective after worshiping in God's presence was this. It pays to be godly. It may not pay in the same way. I may not be physically rich, but I'm spiritually rich. I may not go home, and sleep in a big house, or drive to work in a fancy car, but I have the joy of fellowship and guidance from God. I have the peace of knowing God has settled my eternity forever, and that is more satisfying than any worldly possession. In a phrase, I would sum up Psalm 73 this way. Your perspective is made right as you position yourself to worship in God's presence. So we got to conclude. Worship is positional. Are you with me? Would you close your Bibles for just a moment and listen for the next five minutes? Worship is positional. Just like Asaph positioned himself in the sanctuary... He got himself in the presence of God through worship. Watch, we have to position ourselves in the presence of God daily. But especially when our perspective is skewed, we have to make the proper adjustments, not God. God hasn't changed. We have. God hasn't moved. We have. If, if you need to clean up, I mean, physically, you need a cleansing, you're not going to take a shower while sitting in your recliner in the family room. You have to get up from the recliner, go to the bathroom, get in the shower, and stand underneath the shower head. you got to position yourself to get clean. In the same way, you got to assume the right position in worship in order to change your perspective. Maybe, the, maybe this short story will help you understand, and I'll be done. On July 24th, 2002, that's the year I graduated high school, nine men began their work day like any other day. They didn't take an elevator up to their respective offices. Rather, they descended some 240 feet below ground at the Quay Creek Mine in Somerset, Pennsylvania. They dug through into the cavity 
of an old mine shaft unintentionally opening, check this out, a flood of 50 million gallon, gallons of water. And it came flowing into their workspace. Waters, of course, the levels rose rapidly, cutting the men off from their ability to escape. I'm reading the story. It says the nine men found themselves trapped without any resources to free themselves. If they were to live to tell their story, their rescue would have to come from above. These nine miners instinctively knew survival required repositioning themselves on higher ground. So scrambling to the highest point they could find, they latched themselves together with rope and held on, praying for help to reach them from above. Story says the rescuers working above also knew what these men knew, that they're their only hope. So they set about drilling a six-inch shaft to the highest point in the vicinity of where the men had been last working. Miraculously, the trapped men heard the drill break through and soon fresh air was being pumped into their chamber. Those above ground began to labor even more fervently to bore a larger, what they said, a 30-inch shaft to the men waiting below. 77 hours later, 77 hours the first drill bit broke through to the men. The last of the nine men appeared through the opening of the 240-foot shaft and embraced life again. It's known as the Quay Creek Miracle. And I want you to know the miracle happened because everyone involved knew that life is found in repositioning oneself to high ground. Terry Wardle said this, Don't miss it. Life is about positioning. We are not filled with the presence because of what we do. No one should say, I received the infilling of the Spirit because I prayed. No, you prayed and while there the Holy Spirit filled you. You fasted and while there the Holy Spirit met you. You gathered with other believers in worship and while doing so, He empowered you. You positioned, He acted. His action was not driven by your position. Your positioning placed you in the path of God's transforming work. Does that make sense to you? Is that crystallizing Psalm 73 for you? Worship is positional. Your perspective is determined by your position in God's presence. And so if you're not thinking right tonight, if your whole view of life, not just the wicked, but your whole view of life right now is just negative, and it's not good, God hasn't moved. God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't left. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God that came into your heart when you asked Him to. It's that you've got to reposition yourself. You've got to make some adjustments yourself to get back into His presence through worship on a daily basis. Church member, quit relying on Sundays and Wednesdays only. Get yourself to high ground on Monday morning. And then get yourself to high ground on Tuesday morning. Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and of course on Sunday. Because it's through worship that we move into the high ground of God's presence. And that's the only place where our perspective can be changed. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. What a great study. Stand to your feet.